and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. I am Percy here today with Nick. Hello, hello, hello. And one of our ensemble members, John John Johnson. Hello. Uh, we are taking the occult themes in Brindlewood Bay as our starting point and are going to chat about the magic circle of play, what it does, why it's useful, how we can make use of it in TTRPGs and performance. Um, before we start in earnest, I want to just name that a major inspiration for bringing this to the pod was Chloe Germain's article in the Analog Game Studies Journal, which is called The Magic Circle as a Cult Technology. I will be sure to put the link in the show notes if you want to check it out. So to start, um, this, I think, term has become more well known in recent like years, uh, but I think it's useful to define it anyway because there are many competing definitions. Um, so what is the magic circle? Uh, the first, I think, one of the first uses of the term comes from Johan Huizinga, which I may be saying wrong because I've only ever seen it read. So sorry, Johan, if I'm mispronouncing it. Rhymes um, with Bazinga. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, he defines it as, quote, a magic circle for play which bounded a space and set it apart from normal life. Inside the magic circle, different rules apply, and it is a space where we can experience things not normally sanctioned or allowed in regular space or life. So in other words, the idea that gameplay happens in this sort of unique, special, separate space that suspends the norms of everyday life and lets us do things we otherwise couldn't or wouldn't. An example of this that a lot of people use, specifically I'm drawing from Amanda Rose Hartley Villarreal in her dissertation, shout out to them, uh, is boxing. Um, so you might say like in normal life, right, it's not considered acceptable for us to uh, hit other people with the intention to harm them um, or the intention to like knock them out. But in boxing, that is exactly what you're supposed to do. And all of your actions in that context are recoded as like, oh, you're playing the game that we're playing. And there are many less violent examples that we could also uh, draw on. The, the boxing example is nice because the magic circle is so literal there because, because mm -hmm. it's an actual boxing ring. But just to, to name as well, I think, you know, there's we'll get into this a little bit more later. But Wizinga, I think, specifically links it to ideas of ritual and like ceremony as well, because he has this whole somewhat dubious theory that uh, everything every, everything human culture has ever done has been a form of play. Well, what is what is let's get ready to rumble, if not bubble, bubble, toil and trouble, right? So. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, my God. That's my new favorite thing, Josh. <laughs> um. Building on this, uh, there are two game theorists who are considered, they wrote a like book that is considered like the foundational textbook of game design, um, Katie Salin and Eric Zimmerman. Um, and I'm pulling from Villarreal's dissertation again for this definition, but it is, I think, from their textbook. Um, quote, the magic circle's boundaries can be porous, but within the magic illusory attitude informs all players that the gamic actions taken are taken within the realm of play and are therefore understood as playful actions leading to a shared understanding and a shared intent to play rather than to harm. Which is just another way of saying it is not necessarily that the things that we're doing are different. It's just that our understanding of what they mean is different within the context of the magic circle. And there's a big emphasis in a lot of conversations about this in game studies that it, like it's it's all rooted in the idea that what we're doing isn't real. Um, like it's the quote unquote, like it's just a game sort of thing. Um, another example that I've seen that I, ca I cannot remember where it comes from. So I, my apologies to them uh, is like the game of Twister. Uh, is a game where like in the rules you have to like get really close to the people that you're playing with you have to be physically touching them in a lot of ways that we at least in like the United States is kind of outside of like the the norms of how we are proximate to each other at least in certain like cultures and communities but in Twister because it's quote unquote just a game we might feel more comfortable doing that so there is like some thinking about the magic circle that is very much like, oh, it's like a pretense. It's like a, a way of sort of saying, oh, this isn't real. So we can do something that we might not otherwise. We can break social norms. We can break laws or rules um, because it's just a game. And then Eric Zimmerman, by way of Chloe Germain, also says that the magic circle is, quote, a way of understanding the interactions, participation and meetings generated by games. Um, so, yeah, all a very fancy way of saying the magic circle is a boundary between the real and the playful it's a way of sort of recasting what actions mean um, when we're playing a game or when we're in the theater um, or in some kind of fictional space. And there's sort of an understanding that like this is contractual. This needs to be agreed upon by all participants in order to exist. Um, it sort of like is a way of opting into the things that might happen in the context of a game. Like in theory, everybody needs to say, OK, we're marking this boundary of play and everything 
beyond this boundary. Here's what here's what is cool to do in here. Um, and everybody sort of agrees to that and enters the space. And that boundary, that that agreement might not be, I think it's worth saying, it, that agreement might not be explicit, right? Because a lot of these magic circles, especially in older forms or like more uh, kind of like deeply culturally embedded forms of play are not like negotiated, um, but they're so culturally accepted that like everybody understands it. If kids are playing tag on the playground, like everybody, everybody, well, presumably, although we're all taught this at some point, but by the time a kid's like seven or eight, most kids have an understanding of what the basic rules of tag are. Um, so uh, if somebody just runs up to you and slaps you and says tag, you're it, you can kind of like jump into the magic circle immediately because that's a shared um, like cultural understanding of what that space is. Um, yeah. There's also um, a Richard Schechner, who's a performance theorist, idea of quote-unquote dark play, which I think we talked about in our Cozy Games, Cozy Theater episode a little bit. Um, in this context, it's sort of the idea that we might consent to enter the magic circle without necessarily knowing in advance everything that will happen within it. Um, we might sort of mark out what are what is the sort of what's the vibe, what is sort of the general outlines of what we should we are and are not agreeing to by entering the magic circle. And specifically, Dark Play is talking about situations where we are entering um, a game under a certain premise and we might know there is kind of something hidden underneath that premise. And the example that Chloe Germain uses is like horror LARPs where you might be saying, oh, like I'm accepting an invitation to go to a fancy dinner party knowing that there is probably some thing that will be revealed that will sort of change the circumstances that you have agreed to. For example, you show up to the dinner party and everyone is a vampire um, sort of thing. Uh, so there's also sort of consideration of how the magic circle works when you, the the sort of game that you're playing is premised on the idea that you as the player don't know what's going to happen and it sort of takes you by surprise in some way. So how do you sort of account for um, how do you sort of account for that in making sure that people are still like, within the magic circle on terms that they agreed to. Like there's a lot of conversations about consent that figure into this. Um, although I would say those are sort of newer rather than older. Um, there are a lot of older conceptions of the magic circle that I think are very much this exists, um, <laughs> like it or not. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, the oldest definition, one of the oldest definitions of a game is like a voluntary agree or something about voluntary obstacles. So like voluntariness is kind of very central to thinking about games, but I'm rambling. Um, I bring up this idea of dark play purely because I think this is true in Brindlewood Bay. Like the players know going in that there is going to be some sort of dark conspiracy that will slowly build throughout the game, but they don't necessarily know how it will manifest or when it will manifest or what exactly is going to happen. So they're sort of entering the magic circle of play here, understanding that like the context will change and the agreement that they've made will change. I think this turns up a lot in... Um in horror games specifically because they rely so much on that feeling of powerlessness or of um, surprise and suspense. So we saw this in Bluebeard's Bride as well, right, where the, the, the magic circle is sort of entered into with certain parameters in place, but not with the expectation that there will be kind of like surprises or revelations along the way that will be will be disturbing or will be horrifying, I guess I should say, in that, you know, hopefully safe and consensual way. I will say I I have a certain soft spot for the the old school magic circle definition of like, it's a thing that happens. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like like it or not. And, but we'll we can talk about that a little bit later, maybe when we dive into some of the the critiques of this idea. Amazing. Um sort of circle back to Chloe Germain, um, who thinks about it as a quote-unquote occult technology. Um, Germain's definition is, quote, the magic circle as a technology through which mutual participation and mutual immersion between world and player is revealed. So in other, in other words, understanding the relationship between play and the universe, a sort of way of, it's, re it's relational. It's a way of sort of thinking about how we uncover broader truths about the world in a sort of like ritual occult witchy sort of sense um the thought struck me that as we we talk about like the way 
play occurs as a way of play of exploring our relationship to the universe and not just necessarily the relationship of play in the universe but us through play like i you know i think about as a child playing like imagination games you know and like you know you're you're establishing maybe not in the precise terms of magic circle but you're establishing parameters in which you enter a make-believe world which is then what we do in tabletop games and in theater uh but then also like the uh, i feel like the explicit adult version is like the is like bdsm mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. where we talk about each one is like there you have scenes there are, you are you have play partners like all that language is also encoded there as well as a means of exploring what your boundaries are and what your relation to sexuality and intimacy are so it was just thinking that 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 quote just struck me as something that is a little more germane than germane intended <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the interesting thing about the I, – I love the idea of play and that's what I think the magic circle is really getting at because it's so like broad. You know, we see it in, in tabletop games. We see it in sex and BDSM. We see it in uh, theater all the time. Um, the medium of theater is a, is a play. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, like what we do in theater is called plays. Um and and the performers used to be called players in English and usually aren't anymore, um, which I think is is bad. Uh, we should go back to that. Uh, less action, more playing. Uh, <laughs> there, that's that's my that's my senior thesis. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, but is talking about the the kind of old school definition of it. This is what I do find. As much as I'm very suspicious of like Wizinga's kind of early twentieth century European. Uh, haha, I have found my one idea that explains all human behavior thesis, which is kind which is pretty much uh, what his take is. I do love that one of his core examples of the magic circle and of play is Greek theater, which of course is also like religious ritual. So it kind of blends all a lot of these ideas together in a really fascinating way to say all of these things are playful um, and all of these things share certain impulses and structures that we can look at uh, in a useful way. Mm -hmm. I think a useful quote from the Germain article here is is that um, the magic circle, quote, undermines human-centered notion or human-centered accounts of play as an activity that imposes meaning on the world and instead reveals the ways in which play is responsive to and emerges from a world outsider beyond the human. So the idea that John John brought up of, yeah, play is an ex- play is an exploration play is like a mediating force between us and the world. Not, I don't know, to pull the like imagination games that we play as children example. Yeah. It's, it's not saying like I have declared that the floor is lava and so it is, <laughs> um, but rather uh, a way of sort of thinking about, how can we make the world around us feel stranger and how can we sort of think more critically about the world around us and how can we come to deeper understandings based on this sort of interface with the world that is mediated through play. Um, and Jermaine brings up the word, like the word magic and what the word magic means um, and thinks of it as a philosophy and practice that emphasizes human connections with the universe that enacts a continuity between human will or action in the world around us Um, as well as sort of letting the universe enter us as well. So not only us sort of reaching out to the universe, but also the reverse of that. Um, So again, like magic and play, I think very aligned here in terms of like this force that allows us to sort of do this exploration between our real lives and this sort of fiction of games and magic. Yeah. Well, even magic in this context applies to, you know, our, our power fantasies in, fantasy and in sci-fi for instance and even you know like comic books we were talking you know like uh, superhero stuff you know we have all sorts of explanations for how someone got their power but they're really no different than magic in this way and that it allows these characters to interact with the universe or the world around them in a way that they can manipulate differently because of their new newfound abilities so you know we talk so much about magic in like the fantasy sense as sort of the the way to wield the forces of the universe is to achieve your goal. But, you know, I also come from like a tradition where magic is, is as simple as like, you know, peering beyond the veil, as it were, you know, uh, what are the things you see differently in the world around you as a result of, you know, um, I think, you know, someone in my family said like, your magic is the ability to discern, you know? And I'm like, you know, yeah, that's, that is 
just as palpable a way as you know sure i'd rather have eldritch blast but like you know uh uh you know just magic is is a really lovely i think way to say it is not known and it is not understood uh but this is something that we can do i love i love that so much um the other sort of thing that i think the magic circle necessitates is like there has to be a process of entering and leaving it there has to be like a signal that you have sort of crossed into this space or that you are you know like you you are in a playful space or a magical space in which you can't necessarily take for granted that the way you make meaning from the world around you or the actions that you might take will be read the same way um like there has to be some sort of signal that like suddenly things are different and a sort of thing that this also makes me think of is like if you think of certain like witchcraft or occult traditions, there is like the practice of like casting a magic circle that sort of says, okay, like this is the space in which the ritual or the spell will take place. And then I will, I will dispel it and and send it away at the end to sort of signal that real life has picked back up. I like, I think again, when we look at a lot of magic or even theatrical or various traditions, there is the, the opening, right? The invocation. And that like, I think every different practice has its different term for it, but really what it is, is, I think all of them are simply just a way of focusing your senses, right? Making sure that you're, it is its own form of meditation, the call to prayer. You know, when I grew up in Malaysia and you hear the the bells ringing, knowing that it's time for, for prayer or like I said before, the jokingly, you know, let's get ready to rumble, right? Uh-huh. Like, like that's a signal that the fight's about to begin. You know, you have the, the ring of the bell and what it does is it allows all the participants to focus their senses, their mind, their spirits, whatever they need be into the, into the act that they're about to engage in. You know, so many of our narratives and I think, you know, I think my favorite is this connection to like sports as a magic circle, right? It's like so many, you know, athlete stories, movies, accounts are always like, you know, I focus in the world fades away and it's just me and my opponent or just me and my team. Like that is all, you know, that particular flavor of entering the space, you know, and I make fun of them a lot for it. But, you know, actors are sitting there going, you know, like Topeka, Topeka, Topeka is their version of like focusing their senses too, you know, so. Well, um, and what, yeah. I, what I love about that and and a kind of connection I see between all these things and this lovely idea Germaine has about letting the universe enter us and using the space within the magic circle as an exploration is that as um, as Mia Consalvo points out, who we'll, we'll talk about her work a little later, um, as, as she points out, this Wazinga's idea of the magic circle shares a lot of ground with the anthropologist Victor Turner's notion of a liminal space, which is a, a like phrase that's gotten a little bit abused in popular culture these days because uh, lots of people are posting pictures of like doorways and being like, I love this liminal space, which is like technically okay, but in its original meaning <laughs> uh, has to has to do with, again, ritual and transformation. The liminal space is a a sort of mental or spiritual or social space that one enters uh, for the purpose of transformation. It's been a while since I've read Turner, but if I'm remembering correctly, the original example is like coming of age rituals where you, you know, you are, for example, a child and then the ritual begins and you are in the liminal space of like neither child nor adult. You are in a space of exploration and transformation. And then as which, again, I think is similar in a sort of social context to the way that we enter a a magic circle when playing games or performing theater of being like neither ourselves nor entirely something else. And then at the in Turner's conception, which is again more focused on like ritual, he's an anthropologist, you know, the liminal space is one where usually you exit it and you are something else. So in that coming of age example, you start as a child, you go into this liminal space, you come out of the liminal space as an adult. But again, that idea of like you go into this space, not just it's to tie back to what Percy was saying earlier, it's not just a thing that happens. It's a technology and a space that you enter into for the purpose of self-exploration or self-realization or universe exploration. Yeah, there is there is a, a fleeting draft thought here, so bear with me. But like 
I'm I'm hung up on the idea that magic allows the universe to enter us, but coming from, you know, for lack of a better term, like a more Eastern Buddhist Taoist centric, like those traditions teach us that we are the universe, you know, so what is the point of that delineation? And then, you know, of course, it makes me think about like, you know, anime, where it's like, you need to seal off that power so you can like get it a little bit more each time and get more accustomed to it. And so like, is the magic circle in this way helping us understand our place in the universe, which ultimately leads us to the enlightenment that we are, in fact, just the universe to that one is, is it Carl Sagan quote, where it's like, where the universe's means of understanding itself? I think that's Sagan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I, I butchered, so forgive me, Carl Sagan, um, or whoever said it. <laughs> Enemy uh, of the yeah, pod, like, Carl Sagan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like I, I, I wonder if this the concept of magic and the idea of that, like we enter these liminal spaces to emerge changed, is our way of processing the idea that we are actually already the universe, that we exist in all points of time already, etc., like, because we can only, what was it? We like, we exist in three dimensions, right? So even our memories are three dimensional. So that means like, if magic is what allows us to conceptualize the fourth and the fifth dimensions and that connectivity to the greater universe, then that's, that's really cool. <laughs> that yeah. top petered out. <laughs> <laughs> no, that no. was great. Yeah. Well, cause I, yeah, something that Jermaine and many other people also talk about is the idea that like play reveals to us other ways of being in the world, which I think is kind of what you're talking about is that it can lead us to realizations that uh, the way that we currently live in the world does not have to be the only way that we currently live in the world. Um, like something that uh, specifically in context of like sci-fi and fantasy that Darko Suvin, who's like a literary theorist talks about is this idea of cognitive estrangement, which um, I have some qualms. I have a lot of qualms with his, uh, <laughs> with his concept, but like the like root of it is essentially that like interacting with science fiction and fantasy worlds that are like unlike our own or things that feel different or elevated in some way from the way that we live our lives normally makes the real world feel strange in a way that lets us be critical of it or lets us transform it or lets us sort of come to some sort of deeper understanding in some way, because like we're so immersed in our everyday lives that we need something that is not that in order to awaken us to the fact that like the, our everyday lives are not the only option. Right. Um, and I think the, like one of the interventions that Chloe Germain is making in this article is this idea that like the magic circle is not just a thing that happens, but it is in fact a tool that we can make use of. Like we can take this phenomenon that happens and, and use it intentionally um, to sort of further whatever end our art is is achieving. Yeah, I think she calls it a techni, which is becoming a very popular term in performance art academic spaces. I feel like right now the, the it's as far as I it's just the Greek word for tool, right? I yes, I TBH only became aware of it because of Michael Chambers and Mike Sell's systemic dramaturgy, which talks a lot about techni. Um, but it, I think it, I think the idea of it is it's like a fusion of human beings with technology, right? Yes, yeah, and it's and it's I think a, also a deliberate like uh, an extension of the idea of technology back into the like pre modern era to kind of remind us as well that like tech technology quote unquote is not a new thing. It doesn't mean um, computers. That, Right, yeah, and that like ritual and tools and social structures often also function as technologies. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm down with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a useful thing to sort of elaborate on too, because we've been I've been very game centric. Um, but how how does the magic circle show up in theater? Like, how do we establish the magic circle in quote unquote traditional performance, which is a nonsense term, but. <laughs> I mean, I feel that like mainstream Western theater is very – there's two ways to look at it. There's the Topeka, Topeka, Topeka <laughs> account from a performer's standpoint. But I, I, I also think of it a lot from the like audience standpoint where we – you know, I I've have always felt that theater spaces are extremely kind of magic circle oriented – uh, in that you, you know, you you come from outside, you come from the real world, you enter a special place with special rules of behavior, you're all going to sit, like you're all going to sit facing one way, which is fundamentally a weird way to organize, you know, 150 people or however many people are in your audience. 
uh, re- we turn the lights down. We make a kind of ritual announcement that we don't expect anyone to actually pay any attention to. Uh, and then the lights go out entirely and a thing happens. And then at the end of the thing happening, <laughs> uh, and then at the end of the thing happening, um, we we have this process where the lights like come up partly and we all clap our hands together for reasons that are lost to history. Like, why is this an expression of approval? Um, it's just making noise. And but that but that like both signals our approval and like transitions us back in transitions us the audience back into being like active in a way that simply sitting and watching the show does not. Um, and and then we like stand up and the lights come all the way on and we're back in the real world. So to me, like that process has always felt very ritualistic and very kind of magic circle-y of like, yes, we go into this space and then we come out of the space even like before we go out of the theater. Yeah, I think I think similar concepts are being taken, especially with the the blossoming of intimacy choreography. You know, like we, the intimacy choreographers talk a lot about like getting into the headspace and then how to also leave it behind uh, because, you know, and that this is where I think there's a lot of that overlap with like BDSM and play is like you are doing these things that in public uh, that are typically not societally acceptable to do in front of other people. There's that voyeuristic quality to it, you know, and so there is how do you do it in a way that is comfortable to you? And so like using the magic circle in a, a really, I think a really beautiful way to make people comfortable with their bodies in the, in a state of performance and allowing them to protect themselves in there, especially because there is so much danger involved in that vulnerability in those moments. And so I feel like within the, the greater magic circle of theater, I think those, those microcosms exist there within choreography in particular, you know, and, and like, I think language around intimacy choreography is really, coming is really tapping into a lot of these roots here as well. And I think it's a good example of how we can sort of evolve past the idea of the magic circle working because it's quote unquote not real because like intimacy that you do on stage is very real. Like it's not, it doesn't mean the same thing because you're not doing it out of like genuine, like you're not doing it in a way that is actually about your fondness for the person that you are doing intimacy on stage with, but it is real. Like your body is doing that with another person's body. So I think it's a good example of how you know the magic circle is reframing what we're doing it's not saying this isn't real yeah and i think for myself personally like i know recently i did a film shoot where i had to be in an intimate relationship with someone and without the techniques to find closure to it i was like oh no i have a crush on this person because my real body still processed the real hormones and my brain was like oh like we're experiencing arousal. Let's that must mean we're in love, you know? And so like the brain still treated everything even real, even if it logically understood that this was a fake scenario. So like the again, applying intimacy choreography to that, there are things like here's how you release those feelings. Here's how you, you know, exercise them when you no longer need them, because otherwise you carry them out of that circle into the real world, which is something that, you know, that's and it's also, I guess, one of my great hopes with theater you know we talk about i think i was talking with percy earlier about you know at the end of a show you know we witness something you know traumatic for a marginalized population and the privileged class goes oh and they perform their guilt and then they leave they leave it all in the circle it does not travel with them out into the world you know and so like how lucery how porous are these circles and how is there a way in which we can maybe manufacture the ways in which they're porous. Like how do we get people to take gifts out from with them? So like uh, when I worked with the Arcanists in DC, like one of the things for each of the individual pieces, which were one for listeners, it was like uh, seven performers devised three pieces for each of the major arcana for the tarot cards. And then when you bought a ticket, you got uh, one of the cards and that performer would perform a solo piece just for you. And one of the, the parts in crafting this piece was that you had to impart the audience member with a gift, uh, which is either in the form of a lesson or a trinket or a reminder. And so those pieces were intentionally crafted to take something out of the piece into the world beyond that. So like, what are the ways in which we as theater makers can create that porous, that boundary, make sure it's a little more porous so that people can take things with them into the world? Because I think maybe it's not true for all theater artists, but I think we want 
to inspire a level of change in the world around us through the craft that we have so meticulously done. And I think in our hearts, we have to believe that that change is possible. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that leads really well into some like critiques of the magic circle that have been made by um, particularly like theorists who are not cis men, um, because like a lot of theorizing around it was like very much from that perspective. Um, But sort of I think one of the most well-known big critiques of the magic circle is Mia Consalvo's article, There Is No Magic Circle. Um, and essentially she's arguing that it's not, the magic circle is not as separate or as bounded as it seems. Um, we're bringing our own understandings and interpretations into the space of the game and our own assumptions about what, what are we playing and what is it for and what are we trying to do? Um, and she notes particularly the way that power dynamics or dynamics of inequality can often usually unintentionally reproduce themselves in gameplay. Um, like who has more power to define what is, what is and is not acceptable, who is listened to when they are like, this action actually does not read as playful to me, even if we're in the magic circle and that sort of thing. So that's sort of the big thrust of what she's getting at. Yeah, I think another another thing she brings up that I that I have found really useful in my thinking around performance, particularly and like interactive performance, especially is she invokes. Um, oh, what are their first names? Irving Goffman uh, and Gary Allen Fine. Thank you, Percy. I, I, I had Irving. I did not have Gary Allen. Um, she invokes Goffman and Fine's uh, idea of frames and frame shifting, uh, which is, again, a kind of like sociological notion of the ways that we make sense of our social world um, as perhaps a better way to understand the act of gameplay than the magic circle, which I think... Which which I think has a lot of validity and is really useful because it's not – what it means is that it's not so much that you are either in the magic circle or out of it, you know, in this very kind of binary uh, state of like, oh, we're, we're in there and everything is fine or we're out of it and everything's not. It's rather like, uh, you know, we are shuttling rap- sometimes very rapidly back and forth between our like – uh, social frame of like me in relation with the other people I'm playing with to our sort of like in-game frame of either the narrative or the mechanics that I'm interacting with and potentially even more depending on, you know, if I, if we're doing this in a sort of in, in an actual play, for example, then the frame of like I'm a performer telling a story for an unseen audience. That's another like kind of frame that we bring to it. Um and I find that idea really useful because it does, I think, break down that sort of binary notion of like, oh, you're in it or you're not, the magic circle. Um, and I think that's it's just a better way to think about what it means to play a game. Um, yeah. Uh, another sort of major like critique that I think is useful of the magic circle that builds sort of on what Katsalvo is getting at is Emma Vossen's, uh chapter – uh, the magic circle and consent in gaming practices, which sort of brings back this idea of of consent as a central sort of question about what the magic circle is and does. Um, and she talks about how, like, while ideally all of the players negotiate the boundaries of the magic circle, quote, that boundary is rarely negotiated by all players. Most frequently, those boundaries are defined by the dominant players in games culture, while marginalized players find themselves outside the boundaries of the circle. Sort of getting at, again, this idea that, like, dynamics of inequality that exist in our real world are often reproduced in games um, without us sort of being aware of it a lot of the time. Yeah, and I think we see this in, the- in th- within theater's magic circle all the time, right? I mean, the whole notion of what proper theater etiquette is, big scare quotes around that idea, you know, that's, that's like racially – uh, encoded and class encoded the idea that you have to like sit there in the darkness and not respond. I mean, I think verbal responses are just one like really, you know, straightforward common example. Uh, and also, like, what like, are you? What are you supposed to wear? And all of that sort of thing too. What are you supposed to wear? Even I mean, listen, I the the older I get, the more I'm the more I'm like, fuck it, let the audience do whatever they feel like. I I remember on Twitter there was a thing where somebody. I think a theater critic um, was all like having a hissy fit about somebody who took their shoes off in a theater. And I was like, unless they're like deeply unhygienic and it's like, you know, causing distress for audience members nearby, like who who really gives a shit? 
Um, but that's a longer that's a longer rant. The point was uh, the po- the point I was trying to drive at was like you know the the notion of theater etiquette has a very particular racial and class history that is then imposed often on anyone who enters a theater. Well, I mean, I you know to to pull it to more mainstream witchcraft real quick. Like I thinking about that moment in One Division, right, where it's like only the witch who casts the runes can control the space on the inside, you know. Mm-hmm. And so the question always comes back to like, well, who made the rules? You know, one of the things I talk a lot about in theater is that like, like every aspect of theater has been built upon by white supremacy, right? And so the only way to deal with that is to bake anti-racism into every strata of theater and like audience audience behavior is one of them the ways in which we control the audience is one of them you know so like they the i feel like you know white american theater set the runes around the magic circle and they're the ones created all the rules so anything of course uh, let acts in opposition to those rules is the other or is the undesirable you know we look at uh you know how like even right now where I am, where I am in Broadway, uh, where I'm in New York, right? Uh, you know, shows that sent that highlight casts of color are not doing as well mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, you you look at this world where like the are these are not the sh- kind of shows that sell, even though these are the kinds of shows that like people of color might want to be telling. Maybe, you know, I don't want to speak for all people of color there, of course. But, you know, like shows like K-pop and Ain't No Mo won't do as well in comparison to their white counterparts on Broadway because they're just not going to sell. But like Broadway's not selling in general right now, but still uh, like, so I, but I think that also speaking to like Broadway, not selling as well on the overall is probably a sign that whoever set up those runes have existed from an outdated system. And maybe there needs to be an update in that system on how we do theater in general. Uh, and then, you know, the same thing goes to TTRPGs. You know, we have, you know, uh, what was it? The 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 flag bearing standard of D&D and like Warhammer as wargaming and like TTRP and like T- Warhammer less TTRPG. But like so many systems that have created and, and dominated the market for so long because of the way they excluded gender diverse folks, anyone who wasn't really male, you know, and uh now with the proliferation of TTRPGs of different things, they I think they struggle to find the same foothold that D and D holds on the community, uh, because again, like D and D kind of set the tone for what TTRPGs are, and it's so hard for people to explore outside of those boundaries. And so, yeah, I have a lot of feelings about that, but yeah, so <laughs> I, I agree basically that like the on how the, the critique of the magic circle is I think less a critique of the magic circle versus the critique of who created the circles that we currently are entering and exiting. Mm-hmm. I think, I think, yeah, I think it speaks to just a need for like, I think there is a perception of this sort of magic circle idea as this invisible thing that just happens. But in reality it is like created by pe- it is created by people. And yeah, in fact, we just need to develop maybe a practice of acknowledging yes, the witch who cast the, the witch who cast the runes and being open about that. Um, as opposed to sort of assuming one universal objective standard. Yeah, I mean, I approach a lot of my EDI work from the realm of neutrality, and I feel like there's an importance to neutrality. I feel like there's an importance to neutrality as a result, right? Like, I remember doing an EDI workshop where people were like, oh, gatekeeping, it's bad, it's really bad. And I was like, well, what about queers who need to gatekeep their sacred queer spaces to keep cis people, straight people from invading it? Like, is that not gatekeeping? And people are like, oh, shit, maybe gatekeeping not bad right so i i think it's the similar idea here where it's like magic circle as we said before is just a tool it in itself is not inherently good or bad it is like even good tools can be used in bad ways and when i say good and bad i mean like evil ways so like in this instance we're dealing with you know a magic circle that has created so much of the technique around western theater and we can see its good uses like in the way of like when I talked about intimacy choreography earlier, but we can also see how it's historically harmed and excluded people. And I think it is our onus as theater practitioners and TTRPG players of the current to like wield these techniques in ways that are more helpful to our communities and harmful. And when we discover the ways in which they cause harm, how do we unlearn those behaviors and how do we heal and make reparations for those behaviors? And and just to, I think I think to build on that, Understanding it as a technique, as a tool, as a technique also means understanding the the very real like material resources um, that have gone into developing that those techniques and and to reinforcing them. And I think this is 
This is one place where I would maybe challenge Mia Consalvo a little bit is like staying staying aware of what those material resources are while also not conflating the existence of the magic circle with the existence of those resources and systems. Um, because this is one one thing I question in her essay. She goes into the example of uh, MMO RPG players um, who are doing things that violate the terms of service of the game. And I'm like, well, that's interesting be- because to me, that's not necessarily a violation of the magic circle of play, or at least I don't think it would be based on my experience playing MMOs. That's a violation of a contractual, like, capital relationship with a, like, huge company. You know, that's that's like you have broken the contract you signed when you gave Blizzard or whoever your $15 this month. Um, and that's a very different relationship than the one you're in with other players. But they do inform each other. Like, they're not unrelated and the material reality of like who controls the space, who contr- who enforces that contract, whether it's that literal contract or the social contract of, you know, when you're in the theater, you have to be quiet. Like those material realities are an important thing for us as artists to keep our eye on, even as we're like thinking about, you know, our, our wonderful art and like how, you know, how it will let us explore the universe and all of those things. I have noticed a tendency and like perhaps this is just my anecdotal experience, but I think there is a tendency when people, at least in the theater industry, make a critique of like, we shouldn't do things this way because it causes harm. Then they're like, well, what rules should we use instead? And when in fact, I think the actual question that we need to ask is like, where did these rules come from and what what would it be like if they came from somewhere else? Like, I think it's not let's find a new system of hegemonic rules to use that are better in some way, because like, ultimately, I don't necessarily believe that any system of hegemonic rules will be like ideal and perfect for everybody. But in fact, like, yeah, I think we need to spend more time asking the question of, yeah, from where does the magic circle emerge as opposed to like what specific framing of the magic circle is the best one? Yeah, you know, there's the the great director approach to it be like well could it be a magic square instead <laughs> um, but, but there's also you know like examining the roots of things i think is so much of the important root behind the movements of decolonization and the like as well like uh, when i teach anti-bias for edi workshops it's you know i literally ask people be like hey what's a bias you held in teaching this class and then instead of being like that's bad being like cool where did that come from and where did this idea take seed in you because it grew into something that you carried but do you need it anymore can you discard that belief you know can you like it's not necessarily about replacing it with a new belief but this belief no longer serves you as a teacher because it's you're bringing in this unconscious bias into this room and this unconscious like unconscious bias does not spring up from nowhere it comes from perhaps you know like like you know unconscious bias can be as simple as like i don't like pizza because when i ate it one time i threw up so i avoid it right that has nothing to do with pizza but your emotional reaction to it so you avoid it right so like i think similar things to the magic circle as well like i I, again the neutrality of a technique i think is is important to uphold anywhere well i feel like this comes back to the idea that we were talking about earlier to kind of bring us a little bit full full circle um Uh, Is the idea that like this is a way of reaching some kind of deeper self-understanding or a way of changing our relationship to ourselves or the way that we understand the world or what have you? The idea that, yeah, like we by asking the question of where does this come from, we are in fact sort of engaging in a a process of, of exploration that estranges things that we take for granted. That is, I think, what the magic circle functions to do as a tool. Um, I didn't explain that super well, but that is what I was thinking. No, I I think you did. And because like the magic circle, both in participating in it or critiquing it from the outside provides you data points. And I think that's something that I, I want more people to approach in general with. It's like everything, whether you accept, reject, criticize, or like embrace it, it provides you a data point on who you are in your relation to this thing. Oftentimes these are, you know, parasocial relationships because you don't, but like you are able to determine yourself through a reflection of yourself through a thing. And so even in this way, like playing with the concept of magic circle allows you to understand where you exist in the universe in relation to this one thing. And like it's those just become data points. And then the next step of this critical thinking process is understanding which data points are junk data. You know, like, like, cause we, I think because we are very like, 
centered creatures we want each thing to be directly relational to us in some way shape or form and we seek out those biased viewpoints to like to confirm and validate because being validated in the thing feels so good and so like what where do we i think just figuring out where we exist in relation to magic circle in this case is not irrelevant but it's like wherever you end up in relation to it whether you like it as a technique or not like good good for you it's yeah. really what it comes down to yeah because i'm th- i think this makes me think about like um like the benefit of the magic circle is partially that it creates an environment where you can do things safely that you otherwise would not which tells us which tells you a lot about certain things but if you start to like you can start to ask the question of like oh why did i make this choice in this D game and sometimes the answer is just because it was fun and sometimes it will lead you to some kind of like you know oh this character is a nuanced exploration of my relationship to masculinity and sometimes it's like i wanted to play a himbo barbarian Maybe i am trans <laughs> i mean literally like it's it's sometimes it's sometimes it's that and sometimes it's just like i thought this would be fun and that's all it is but you wouldn't know unless you were in a space where you felt supported in that exploration. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, so much as it regards to like queerness, identity, et cetera, like the, the power of that magic circle is giving you guidelines and frameworks in which to explore. And I think so long as for me, when magic circle remains about exploration, I think that's where I think it really shines because exploration to understand about yourself or the universe, or particularly the way you relate to the universe through this very particular lens again is, is data, (laughs) you know, and the data might be like, Oh, I guess I'm trans. Like, (laughs) great, cool. Amazing for you. You know, the, the data might like, that's the thing. Like I, you know, and this is maybe a slight tangent, but I talk a lot about how I wish heterosexuality were like, a choice people made rather than the default mm-hmm. you know it's like you've had the chance to explore it and you realize none of the other options are actually for me then i'm like cool i feel like that's positive heterosexuality because you've you've tried it and it just didn't for whatever reason didn't take you know and you're like you know what great and then the, to be open to the world in which because it is a fluid spectrum and you continue to play you continue to explore maybe you're not in the future or maybe you go back to it who knows like but so much of like what I want and, and what I'm inspired by in this conversation is like, again, like exploring those aspects of yourself, trying on a different gender with close friends and being like, does that does that does that spark joy or does it make me feel weird? And like using those data points to determine where you exist in relation to big concepts like capital G gender and capital S sexuality, like and like, you know, so like we talk a lot about like straight actors playing queer characters like. I was talking with a friend just the other night being like, is that like when you when they do it like really well, it's like, is that like a oh, honey, baby, do you not see it moment? Or is it like or are they actually developing what we hope theater does in creating empathy for stories different than your own? And so, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it even scales up beyond individual experience to the level of like, what would it be like to live in a world without capitalism or what would it be like to live in a world where these things that feel immovable in the world in the you know our everyday lives what would happen if those things were movable what would happen if we i don't know lived in a world where nature had reclaimed the planet and a bunch of thirsty sword lesbians are dealing with megafauna in this society that is in many ways very i think i think i would argue a lot of the choices that we made in world building for thirsty sword lesbians was very much like um things that we would like to be true like sometimes it is nice to use game spaces or theater spaces as ways to just explore things that we would like to be true. Yeah. Or, you know, conversely, when you look at things like going back to season one, like apocalypse world where it's like, this is a world in which none of us, I think want to actually come true, but like, look at the ideals we pursued internally about community and friendship and family, et cetera. These are the things that we realized that from stripping away and finding a worst case possible world that we discovered what was important to us. So again, the idea that everything is data, it points us towards our heart's desires. Well, and, and, and again, with uh, even darker games like Bluebeard's Bride, uh, you know, what, you know, that lets us explore things like what do we do when our back is up against the wall or what do we do when there is actually no way out? What's valuable to us then and how do we how do we resist or not just thinking through the art, the like possible arcs of that game? Um, how do we resist or not in that kind of situation? That's also valuable data. 
you know, that's also a, a part of self-exploration is exploring those to to mangle Schechner's uh, term to to explore those kind of dark corners of the self or of our world as well. Yeah, I did a. A devised piece way back when, much earlier in my career, called Apotheosis that I had the idea for, which was like, let's take these really like, quote unquote, dark concepts such as like brutality, depression, anxiety, things like this that we don't normally celebrate. And what happens if we celebrate them? And so like each person got to build a piece around one of the themes. But I think the thing that emerged that I loved the most was that at the end of each rehearsal, knowing that we were entering very dark places in our own mentalities, we developed as a group just a ritual where we stood in a circle and we all took a breath in and a breath out together in unison to just sort of release what we had been working on and keeping it in the space. And I remember after doing that, like we had talked about, do we do that with the audience? Do we bring them into that? And I was like, no, that's our personal ritual. I think that's just for us. And I think, but for the rest of the audience, we need to figure out what's the invitation and what's the way of letting them release it as well. And so we invited them to participate and, you know, so that they had, we had their consent for them to participate in things. And then also at the end, we thanked them, you know, and showed them gratitude for playing along or witnessing. And I think that's very much flavored my mentality as a theater maker is like what are the what are things that are private specifically for the people creating it versus what are the things for the audience and then you know because they're those different strata of circles again and like what what is permeable between them what travels between them and what do you want conveyed between those those different barriers yeah I feel that that's actually a very good place for us to leave off. Um, thank you all very much for joining us for our conversation about the magic circle in theater and TTRPGs. Uh, and we will see you next week for some more Brindlewood Bay. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. Season three features contributions from Christopher Dierksen, Ben Ferber, Corey Flores, Tess Huth, Romana Isabella, Leo Mock, John John Johnson, and Dex Vaughn. If you'd like to help us continue exploring the intersection of theater and tabletop role-playing games, consider leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice or supporting us and getting access to our patron-only bonus content at patreon.com slash dungeonsanddramanerds. You can find our social media and website links, including our cast bios, at the link tree in our show notes. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Dungeons and Drama Nerds.